From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. The debate over banning flavored tobacco and nicotine products reveals divides over everything from taxes to racial justice. It's more marginalized communities that are constantly being targeted. In other words, those communities that are disposable in society. Then, a new play is a risk, and a Denver theater company is taking its 50th risk with its 50th original show. It would feel better to know you had a show before you opened it that was popular and people liked. Yes. The problem with writing your own and performing them and making it all is on opening night, you're like, this might be the worst thing that's ever happened. If people don't like the writing, it's our fault. If they don't like the direction, it's our fault. If they don't like the acting, it's our fault. Come with us on a visit to the unlikely stage of Buntport Theater, sandwiched between a Greek food supplier and a moving company. I'm Claire from Castle Rock. I'm from Longmont, Colorado. I'm from Fruta. From Wheat Ridge. From Sedalia. Genesee. Kiowa. My wife and I live in Boulder. In Grand Junction. Carbondale. Franktown. Windsor, Colorado. Hi, this is Amanda in Loveland, and I support Colorado Public Radio because it is just that. It's publicly funded by the people who listen to it, and I think that should be very valued in our society today. It's easy to donate at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Lawmakers are debating whether to ban flavored tobacco and nicotine products. Think menthol cigarettes and watermelon vape juice. The issue is causing rifts between what are usually political allies on everything from taxes to racial justice. Our health reporter, John Daly, is the special guest of Purplish, the politics podcast from CPR News, with hosts Benta Berkland and Andrew Kenny, the first voice you'll hear. To help you understand what's happening this year, let's rewind a bit and explain why this year's bill is actually the culmination, or a culmination, of decades of work by tobacco reformers and why they think they can pull it off this year. All the stuff they had to do before to get to this point. Yeah, you know, it's fascinating, Andy, that the fight over tobacco goes back decades. You know, some of us even recall when they allowed smoking on airplanes. Yeah, Uh, I had to look up when that ended. Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm old enough to remember uh, flying on those planes, and it was a big change when that was gone. Smoking on airplanes in the U.S. commercial flights was mostly phased out around the late 80s. But the fight in Colorado really picked up momentum again with a ban on smoking in workplaces, restaurants, and bars. Mm. Of course, this is out of health concerns, and secondhand smoke was a big issue. And Colorado was kind of at the forefront. It passed a ban in 2006, one of the earlier states to do that. I was living in North Carolina when they passed a similar bill a few years later. And yeah, it was big deal. It took a little longer there because North Carolina is such a huge tobacco state. Right. it did change. And I would say it's one of those things where you couldn't imagine it happening before it happened. And then afterward, you're kind of like, how, how was it ever the old way? So, John, was this the last big policy fight over smoking before vaping really started to become an issue? Yeah, I think that's a good way to look at it. And then think about in the 2010s, vaping comes along. It's a revolutionary new delivery device that is a game changer, right? And one of the things that happens is that people start consuming tobacco again when it had been on the decline Mm -hmm. for the years before that, right? So that just changes the whole landscape of this issue. 
when young people start to take it up, there starts to be concerns about their health and the long-term implications of that. And it becomes a national story out of the mm. uncertainty about the health consequences. So this is all happening several years after the last big action on smoking. These new products, were they covered already by the existing laws on tobacco? Did the state have a firm like regulatory handle on them? No, it was kind of a Wild West scenario. There were a lot of restrictions on traditional tobacco, what kind of warning labels it has to have, how it can be marketed. But when vaping comes around in the 2010s, it's a revolutionary new delivery platform, and there really isn't any of that. So these products were pretty widely available, even to kids. And John, there were health concerns about this pretty early on, right? That's right. You know, especially when some younger users started getting sick and even dying a few years ago, you'll recall, uh, in particular from a black market additive that was found in some widely available products. There were thousands that were hospitalized, dozens died. It really became a national debate over what to do to make sure vaping products are safe or whether they could ever be considered safe. Tonight, the CDC trying to extinguish the health emergency linked to e-cigarettes, telling users if you vape, stop, until it figures out why so many people are getting serious lung injuries. I didn't think that that little pod could do so much damage. Like every day we're hearing about a vaping related illness or death, and health officials, they say that most of the patients are young and male. And that's when you started to see parents getting involved and joining health advocates and doctors and calling for government response. And just explain a little bit how the government has responded up until this point. Well, you know, we started to see a wave of reforms, uh, starting with what's called T21, uh, Tobacco 21, no sales of tobacco. That includes vaping to those under 21. Mm -hmm. And that's because much of the fight has really been over trying to find ways to keep kids from using these products and become addicted to them. That's, that was the worry. Hmm. And that movement had a really strong playbook. It started in some cities and getting cities to raise the age, and then states joined. Colorado hmm. did it in 2020, and the federal government also raised the legal age to purchase tobacco nationwide as well. So you went city to state to feds. Uh, also in 2020, another thing that Colorado did was that Governor Jared Polis helped to convince voters to raise taxes on tobacco and nicotine products and used the money to pay for preschool. A big part of the message also was that by raising the cost of these products, that it would force some users to cut back or quit, especially kids who don't always have the most pocket change available. And so this all brings us to, to where we are this legislative session. Mm -hmm. The real showdown we're seeing over whether to outlaw whole parts of this market, mm -hmm. whole types of products. Lots of debate is centered on banning these flavors. We know that we have this new health problem that has reinvigorated the tobacco and nicotine reform movement. We've heard about these really high personal stakes for many of the people involved. And what we're about to hear next is how this specific idea of a flavor ban really started gaining momentum in the cities, specifically in the city of Denver. John, let's talk a little bit more about what happened in Denver that led to the big state fight we're now seeing. So Denver is the biggest city in the state. It's kind of been at the forefront of some of this stuff. The city passed T21, Tobacco 21, in 2019 before the statewide action. And the big question was whether Denver would then lead on flavors like menthol and flavored vaping products. And at the time, I asked Mayor Michael Hancock about flavors 
He was open to prohibiting them, but hedged that maybe it should be a state action. You know, it's something that uh, we've got to pay very close attention to and, and something that hopefully working with the state legislature, we, we may, may be able to do that. I mean, doing it in Denver, you know, I don't think is, is, is wise to do it well, versus doing it statewide. But these flavor bans and vaping, black market vaping products that are out there today, um, are really putting people in danger, and we need to move quickly to address it. So that's Mayor Hancock in 2019 saying that he liked the idea of a flavor ban, wanted the state to do it, not necessarily the city, but did the city end up taking up this debate, the city council taking up this debate over the flavor ban? Yes, it did, last year in 2021. And by this time, a half a dozen smaller towns in Colorado had banned flavors, and Other cities and states were doing this as well around the country. Mm -hmm. And a big flavor ban proposal in Denver was making its way through city council. It was one of the most hotly debated topics at meetings. Well, how'd it go? Well, on the one side, there were frantic parents and health experts and anti-tobacco advocates. On the other side, you had business owners and convenience stores, vape shops, employees of those places, and people who said that these products had helped them quit smoking Ah. traditional cigarettes. And opponents also had one big and maybe surprising voice, former Denver mayor Wellington Webb. Wellington Webb is Denver's first black mayor, and he's a huge voice in Denver and statewide politics and a mentor to a lot of Democrats, including Denver's current mayor, Michael Hancock. What were his objections? Well, Mayor Webb said for him it was about equity says the ban itself targets people of color, giving police a reason to stop a person who's smoking to see if they're smoking menthol. And he told me he's in line with a libertarian sort of view on this, that the government should let people make their own decisions and leave the community alone. When you're 21 years old, you should be able to pick and decide what you want to do. To me, that's the key issue. You're going to ban sugar? That's a big issue in the black community as it relates to diabetes. Government can't continue to overreact. And you can't have policy that says that you can't smoke a menthol cigarette, but you can smoke all the dope you want. That doesn't make sense. And when it comes to menthol, it really is a product used a lot more by smokers of color. A study from 2020 found they're used by 85% of black Americans who smoke compared to less than a third of white tobacco users. Hmm. But we should also mention Webb has a consulting company, and one of his clients is RJR Reynolds. That is a tobacco company. And so Webb, who gets paid by the industry, argues that the city shouldn't tell black tobacco users that they can't have these products, that basically it's paternalism, that you're trying to solve our health problems by regulating the choices that individuals should be free to make, even if it's harmful. For reformers, they see menthol as just another vehicle for harm that was inflicted on black communities. That's the message you hear from activists like Brother Jeff Fard. How does this predatory industry continue to make billions off of menthol? And those are primarily communities of color, uh, specifically black communities. And now that you look at the research, it looks more like it's more marginalized communities that are constantly being targeted In other words, those communities that are disposable in society. We have Denver, a democratic city that has a lot of influential black politicians and community leaders. They are not unified on this issue. In fact, some are very far apart. And in the end, that really doomed this effort. 
Well, last year, the council did pass the bill, but Mayor Michael Hancock vetoed it. Hmm. And then the city council did attempt to override that veto. And that vote fell just one vote short. So even though it didn't work for reformers in Denver last year, they now have an even bigger opportunity at the state capitol. House Bill 1064 would ban flavored tobacco for all locations where it's sold, all variations of flavored tobacco. That includes menthol and flavored vaping products. It's being sponsored by an interesting mix of lawmakers, and one of them is Kyle Malka. He's the only nurse in the legislature, and he works in an ER. He'd been working on this nicotine issue for a while, and when I asked him, he told me that this was the biggest bill yet that he tackled on this subject. It's a huge step, um, you know, and so, you know, I think it shows that Colorado is taking this issue seriously uh, and that we're going to do something about it. And we're not going to stand by while uh, big tobacco and and the vaping industry markets to our kids and gets our kids addicted to these products that uh, make them lifelong customers, um, but is detrimental to their development. And it's not unusual for Malika, who is a Democrat, to take on issues that are controversial even within his own party. Because Democrats do hold the majority in both legislative chambers. He's worked on legislation to try to increase Colorado's immunization rate. It hasn't always been successful, but again, these are issues that the party, as we've seen, was what happened in Denver. Democrats are not unified on this. And Malka, of course, is not alone on the bill. It's also sponsored by Representative Jennifer Bacon and Senator Rhonda Fields. Both are Black women with a lot of clout in the legislature. When I spoke to Bacon, she very much agreed with the idea that tobacco marketing has had a disproportionate impact on Black communities. And she spoke a little bit that the idea of banning menthols has split some Black leaders. We were disproportionately targeted to get stuck on something. And now we're arguing to keep it, even though it's harmful, because no one wants to support us in getting off of it. There's one more main sponsor on the bill, Republican Senator Kevin Priola. When it comes to tobacco, many people have a story. Priola and his family told me their story back in early 2020, just before the pandemic hit, about the struggles with vaping of their then 17-year-old son. It was obvious he was addicted to it. He would say he could give it up, but he couldn't give it up. They decided as a family to speak out, hoping to educate people about the rise and dangers of teen vaping. So these are the four lawmakers really trying to push this through the legislature. For Priola, you know, he's the only Republican sponsoring the bill. So that puts him a little bit at odds with his party. Republicans typically are not going to like the government telling a business what to do and aren't supporting banning things. So there is a partisan difference there as well. I would say this bill has been very slow going. (laughs) This bill was introduced very early on, two days after the legislative session began back in January. Mm -hmm. Here we are months later. It's still in the first chamber in the House. It's had two hearings, but it's still awaiting a third hearing before it can even go to the House floor. So a very long process to even get to this point nearing the end of session. And they are facing pretty intense lobbying pressure. The Colorado Sun took a look at this and they found this is the third most lobbied bill this entire session. Mm. 
they tallied up 141 lobbyists working for 87 clients. Wow. It's wow. a lot of lobbyists. So pretty similar debate that we've heard at the state level as we heard at the Denver level. One interesting thing I wanted to pick out was that I heard a spokeswoman for Smoker Friendly, which is a chain of tobacco stores. She said that they would lose 30% of their business if you banned menthols and flavored nicotine products in Colorado. And she also said that this would just drive people up to Cheyenne, Wyoming to buy from their other store there, which is already booming because of Colorado's recently raised tobacco taxes. She said people would just run it back down I-25 and create this big black market. And so why even bother? And Andy, that's a lot of what we heard from opponents of this bill in the legislature talking about how devastating, if this passed, this would be on their business. One of those business owners, Jason Casados, is from Pueblo. He mm. told lawmakers he supports efforts to keep flavored tobacco out of the hands of minors, but thinks that this bill is not the way to accomplish that. You also saw some big questions from fellow Democrats like Representative Chris Kennedy, who introduced an amendment that would have allowed certain stores to keep selling the products with the idea that you just reduce where you can buy them and that'll hopefully work. And that did not go over well with the sponsors. I think that what I was hoping to do with my amendment in committee was drive a conversation about trying to achieve the goal of reducing youth access without impairing adult access. There are reasonable differences of opinion. The sponsors feel pretty strongly that you can't do both at the same time. And um, I wanted to explore the possibility that maybe we could. That amendment did get tacked on the bill for a while, but they sat down and talked it out, and later the amendment came back off. But that shows you, again, those intra-party debates. As we often talk about on Purplish, though, there's one Democrat who we pay a little bit more attention to, and that's Governor Jared Polis, because yep. he really does have an outsized role in this. And I heard one sponsor say, you know, it's not Polis's favorite bill. Uh -huh which I think we know that. And it's not surprising because he's known for having a libertarian streak. <laughs> and, and this bill is about telling adults they can't make a decision to use a product they might want to use. There's also one other thing at play when it comes to Polis and this flavored tobacco ban. If you'll remember, we mentioned that about two years ago, the governor successfully pushed this ballot measure to raise the tax on tobacco. The whole goal was to bring in money to fund universal preschool for free. Right. And expanding early childhood education, that's a huge issue for Polis. He ran on this issue. It's been a top thing he's focused on as governor. He frequently touts it and he's really put it to the forefront, an issue that lawmakers in both parties support. Yeah. I don't think we know anyone who doesn't back early childhood education. Sure. And he made big progress on it with these tobacco taxes. But the rub is that if the state then goes and bans a lot of these very popular tobacco products and you do manage to get more people to stop using them, there goes your tax revenues. If people buy less tobacco, they pay less tobacco taxes. There's less money for universal preschool. Yeah, that's right. That's a huge question here. Here's Representative Mark Snyder. He's a Democrat from El Paso County. He pointed out during hearings on this bill that Colorado has a real problem. It's ridiculous that we don't recognize that we're trying to create a social policy to get people off of these products, and yet we're funding essential services with the taxes that were high taxes we levy on those. What's really interesting is that Governor Jared Polis recently talked to CPR's Ryan Warner about this, and he said he had no qualms about using sin taxes to pay for essential services like preschool. There's a number of different taxes across state government. And, uh, 
you know, there's a kind of walnut shells moving around. But I, what I, I'm proud of is that certainly some of the tobacco tax, some of the alcohol tax goes to, and also some of the gambling tax. These are vices. I'm totally supportive of them being legal, by the way. I'm not a prohibitionist. But I think it's completely appropriate that at least some of that tax goes towards uh, education, um, uh, addiction recovery, and prevention. Um, you know, those are, those are relevant from those, those activities. It does make it seem like this is going to be a long shot to get over the finish line, at least in the form that it is. I think the fact that it's been on the calendar for months and still hasn't progressed that far at the Capitol, that that doesn't always mean it's a bad sign. But I think in this case, yes, the, the hurdle to get this across the finish line would be enormous. But big bills like this often do come back a few times, even if they get rejected or they die the first or the second or the third time around, they may succeed in future years. Andrew Kenny, Benta Berkland, John Daly, and Purplish, the politics podcast from CPR News. Follow this and all of the episodes wherever you get your podcasts and online at CPR.org. And Colorado Matters continues into the next half hour with a scrappy theater company that has produced 50 original shows. The actors are, at various points, writers and producers as well. We'll meet them on the set of their latest production. I'm Ryan Warner, and you're with CPR News and KRCC. CPR is growing and evolving to better serve a growing and evolving audience in Colorado. And we're looking for new members of our team, with job openings now for a fundraising manager and Salesforce administrator. It takes a committed team with roles on and off the air to make Colorado Public Radio, and your skill set and experience may be just what we're looking for. See all open job opportunities and what working at CPR is like at CPR.org careers. Writing 50 original plays and producing them is no small feat, but a small theater company in Denver has done just that. Buntport Theater not only produces original works, the works are also really original and super smart and often so funny you leave sore. I met the five founding members who remain with the troupe on the set of their latest production, and they warned me, quote, sometimes all five of us are a lot. That sounds true. Yeah, that sounds true? Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. it feels true, and we're not even <laughs> yeah. a minute in. Yeah. <laughs> Your new production is a celebration of Richard III called Heart Richard. So why, in God's name, Aaron Rollman, are we sitting on a set made to look like a high school auditorium complete with championship pennants and a basketball hoop? Well, as is obvious, any meeting of the Richard III Society takes place in a junior high. And because this particular meeting has a celebrity coming to it, it's been moved from 108 to the gymnasium to accommodate a larger crowd. A larger crowd. So this is a special club, and we're getting to attend as the audience their meeting. Correct. So that's Erin Rollman. She's arguably the most grating character in this new show, I mean. Buntboard's other original members are Brian Colonna, Hannah Duggan, Eric Edborg, and Samantha Schmitz. I asked Eric to tell me more about this special club at the heart of their new production. Uh, it is the Richard III Society. It is a group of people whose goal is to um, clear the name of Richard III as he has been made a villain by Shakespeare and they are outraged and it is an actual society that exists and they chat about anti-Tudor leanings and all sorts of things. So, 
Hannah, you're the special guest. Mm-hmm. Yes. Who's the special guest? Well, it's based on a real woman, Philippa Langley, who actually was a member of the Richard III Society, who in fact did find Richard III's body under a parking lot in Leicester, England. I mean, that real-life plot is too good not to put in yes. a not-real-life show, Sam. When we saw the documentary King in a Car Park a while ago, it was a few years ago. That King any in of a us, Car Park? Yeah, <laughs> that any of us saw that. And we were just like, all of the characters are so great in this documentary, the real-life characters. And then we started doing research on the society and everything like that. So, Brian, Shakespeare had it wrong. Richard III was a good guy. Well, that's what any good Ricardian would tell you. (laughs) Um, You know, I think Shakespeare was writing during his time and was possibly influenced by a Tudor queen. So he wanted to tell a story that she would appreciate and the people of the time would appreciate. But what's interesting is that most people don't know about medieval history, but because they've had some experience with Shakespeare, it has really defined a historical character for people through a fiction. Yeah, that's right. Every time the word Tudor is uttered in the show, the audience is encouraged to kind of hiss and boo, Eric. Yes, that's actually something that happened organically. Uh, Brian's character makes the daily announcements for the Richard III Society, which starts the show, and his hatred of certain names that he has to uh, say that are pro-Tudor. He says boo and hiss and the audience just goes with him. And so that that actually was pretty organic how that Sometimes started. the audience goes m- more than we expect yes. oh, into their enthu- hatred of the Tudors. <laughs> yes. I think the conversation so far is a wonderful demonstration of both how smart and zany. Zany is almost a kind word. Um, <laughs> I liked it better than smart. So. <laughs> Absurd sure. is a good way to describe Buntport. Yeah, I think. we'll take it. Absurdist. Yeah. And I recall, this is years ago now, a show that y'all did, and it was Kafka mm-hmm. on, on ice. ice. On <laughs> ice. I was hoping you'd fill in the blank in chorus, in unison. Tell me the story of how Kafka was on ice and it was not in a super chilled environment. Yeah, we were teaching at a school, and one of the students said that his father sells synthetic ice. That he said he had an ice skating rink in his backyard, and we were like, that is not possible. This is a child lying to us. Yeah, (laughs) that his father sold synthetic ice immediately. We were like, okay, well, we need that, and we're going to make a show. And the first thing that we said was Kafka on ice. And then we questioned it because we were like, is there a better person to put in an ice capades type environment? And then we were like, no, there's not. He's the perfect. He's the perfect person to put in an ice capades environment. So we went with it. Well, and that means that you could skate on stage. Yes. Does does anyone remember the feeling of that? Yeah. Well, we don't know how to ice skate. So (laughs) so the feeling was a lot of fear. Um, But it was, we are not good skaters, but we could stay on our feet, kind of. We became competent skaters. Yes, competent is a good word. And it was awesome. It's not as slick and it's not as quick, Mm -hmm. but it's like this weird slow motion skate. It holds you a little bit tighter. Yeah. And you want your skates to be a little bit duller. Yeah. To work well. And as it it turns out, it helps to spray armor all Mm -hmm. on the plastic. But you may spray armor all on anything and it'd be much slicker. (laughs) (laughs) Hair. Hair. (laughs) Actor's eyeballs. Yes. Yes. What does that tell us, that kind of smart but absurd 
attention. What does that tell us about all of you as founders of a theater company, Sam? I mean, I think that we all are always working between the idea of challenging an audience as well as welcoming them. So the absurdist nature is just like anyone can come see a Bumport show and you might get different things from it because of quoting you, the smartness of it. <laughs> <laughs> I see. That you wouldn't use the word smart. Okay. I don't know. I mean, I think that there's a lot of research that we put into stuff, so we might seem smarter than we would have been had you just talked to us about any given subject before we wrote a show. Yeah, about. it's not the go-to word when you describe each other, you know? Okay. But there are layers, you were saying. There's a playful nature to what we do as well as an uh, intellectual nature. I asked each of you to do some homework and think of a memorable line from one of your 50 original plays. Share that line with us and place it into a little bit of context. I think it might be a good way to do a kind of round robin of 50 plays. And how many years? When was the company founded? 2000. 2000. The first show was done in college in 1998, but the nonprofit was founded in 2000. This all grew out of your time at Colorado College together, correct? Correct. Yeah. Boy, you seem like a group the teacher would want to separate to me. <laughs> okay, who wants to who wants to go first with a line from the history? I can go first. Okay, go ahead. I can go Roman. first. Um, so this is from the book Handlers, and my character talks about raisins a lot, and she is asked, "Does she prefer regular raisins or golden raisins?" And she replies, "What am I, a queen? Regular <laughs> golden's cost more, you know." And that is her response. And of course, later, there are some large raisins that come to life and start talking naturally. Of course. Naturally. Yeah. But Goldens are a little out of her price range. Out of her price range. She's not a queen. And, and so what was that show about? Uh, that show is about a group of people who distress the, the service that they offer is distressing books, your books, so it looks like you've read them. <laughs> Oh, that's funny. Because people use books, I think, sometimes as an intellectual prop. We saw a lot of that in the Zoom meetings of the early pandemic. Yes. Look at all the books I say that I've read. (laughs) Okay. Who has a good line? Um, I can go. Okay. Go Um, ahead, Hannah. It's actually a lyric from our show, Jugged Rabbit Stew, which is about a magic rabbit who is not a nice rabbit and is upset and depressed and... In the end, he ends up killing himself and making himself into a jugged rabbit stew to feed the people that he has collected because he collects things because he's mad that people collect rabbit's feet. Oh. So in return, he kind of just takes things from people. But the line is that if you are what you eat, who better to embody than a truly magic bunny made of only white meat? (laughs) And it's at the end when we finally get to eat him a, a delicious stew. And it rhymes. It rhymes, yes, because it's a lyric in a song. It's, it's a, a show musical. We, it's a musical that we did with Adam Stone, who is a local... Mm, con- He's a musician. Musician. <laughs> I wanted to say conductor. You could say composer. A composer, yeah, yes. Musician and composer. See how smart we are? Uh-huh. <laughs> I was getting like rabbit equine vibes or equus vibes. Yeah. It's like equus for bunnies. Less nudity. Less, yes. Yeah. No brain. Well, that's disappointing. <laughs> yeah. Okay, who has a line from a show? I'll go. Brian Colonna. So my line is from the Rembrandt Room, which was our first and only so far one-woman show. 
and Aaron played a museum security guard who stood in front of one painting, Rembrandt's painting of Denea. The whole show is a reflection on just that painting and the security guard's experience looking at the same piece of art every day. Oh. And so she says at one point, some of the things that I say that sound like facts, if you think about them, they're not. Like a lot of things I say sound factual, but I'm just the one talking. It's not a prerequisite to know what you're talking about. So, Oh, that's a prescient line given, to, <laughs> given today's yeah. politics. And I, was, I, I think I'd seen that one a lot. Often we're all in the show and we step out to play the role of director when we're not in a scene. But that one, since only Aaron was on stage, I got to watch it over and over and over again. So it sticks in my head more when you ask, think of a line from a past show. It's easier for me to remember what I liked from something. I think it has to do with our body of work too, because we love an unreliable narrator. You know, like, of course you shouldn't believe everything that (laughs) that you see said on stage. Uh, And we like to remind people of that. And in this current show, that's a big part of it, is sort of reminding people that, like, uh, no, you can't trust everything. Oh, yeah, I trust no one on the stage in this current show. (laughs) (laughs) And so that was a show that was entirely Aaron Rollman memorizing, what, an hour's worth of... Yeah, it, it runs about an hour, 20 minutes, yeah. Oh, that makes me nervous. Do you think that people who guard art are bored? Um, I don't know. I, I, we had some docents come to the show, and they said, to, they said to me afterwards, how did you know that that's what it's like? And I think they were talking about the fact that I portray a certain amount of boredom and a certain amount of like, oh, what are we going to do next? And I was like, well, I just think that that's what I assumed. Like if yep. you're just <laughs> standing there and I would think that sometimes it's boring. Yeah. Because I don't think you're really encouraged to get into conversations, long conversations with patrons. About pointillism. Yeah. And no. that, that would be a thing that keeps your day moving if you got to yeah. do that, right? Yeah. But I, don't, I always I don't feel really grateful for those folks because I think this can't be an easy job. Yeah. yeah. Eric, do you have a line? Yes. Uh, my line is from our very first play called Quixote, which was a parallel of the Don Quixote story, but with a professor and his student trying to spread the word of Don Quixote and the set comprised completely of uh, rolling three rolling chalkboards that the backdrops would be drawn on live and erased. Oh, uh, as the, as you were the doing the set in real time. Yes. Mm-hmm. There were some preset things before the show, but a lot of it, somebody's back behind the scene drawing it so it can flip over and show the next scene. And the first line from my first show is doing what? Something. How? And that's the first line. And anytime you say doing, sometimes yesterday when I said it, Hannah just went, what? What? Yeah. <laughs> I just have to go, doing. And go, what? Something. It's both How? of an earworm, but also I kind of think of it as that's what we do here. You know, we're doing what? We have to make a new show. What? What is it? We're something, and how are we going to do it? So it's like the most basic framework of what we have been doing here for over 20 years now, right? Wow. Mm-hmm. It's also poetic that the first show should be quixotic. Mm. <laughs> because I'm sure there were times where it felt like you were tilting at windmills, Sam. Oh, yeah. Still, it still, still feels like yes, that. I agree. We, uh, in the pandemic, maybe. Yeah, in the pandemic, coming out of the pandemic, trying to remember how to do theater. Every time we make a show, it feels like we've not made a show before, even after 50 shows in 20 years. Is that beginner's mind? 
I don't know. It feel it's it has a lot to do with the fact that we're always trying to make things different. We're not trying to do a similar show ever. So each time there's some challenge for us as well as for the audience or whatever, whether it is the theater magic part of it or just like discovering the characters in a way that because they're all written by us, we, we clearly have one, one massive viewpoint and trying to diversify that viewpoint is one of the challenges that we work with. And no two shows ever feel the same. And that's wonderful, but it must be exhausting for you. Do you have a line? I do have a line. My line is from our version of Hamlet, which was a three-man version of Hamlet called Something is Rotten. And the quote is actually a Shakespeare line. It is, I'll take the ghost's word for a thousand pounds, if it's the Daily Double. And... The first part is Hamlet, and then the Daily Double part is just the addition from Julius, who is one of the characters on stage. But I, it's my favorite line because I think of it every day when I'm watching Jeopardy and someone says, I'll take. <laughs> so. so really, favorite is a strong word. It's more like this annoying thing that yeah. happens to you all the time. every day. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> This conversation with the troupe at Denver's Buntport Theater continues in a moment. Their 50th original show, Heart Richard, closes Saturday. The company is highly collaborative. Depending on the show, they all write, act, and direct. Coming up, how Buntport survived the pandemic with space helmets. And what's something they haven't tried on stage but want to? This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. As a teenager struggling with addiction, Morgan Sinclair found help through a program at his Denver high school to stay sober and graduate. Now he's gone back to help others. Hey, Morgan. hey. Being 15 and in recovery, high school is like a horrible place to be. So being able to like make people feel comfortable with their journey in recovery, it's super cool. Morgan's story is the latest episode of Back From Broken, everywhere you listen. With support from Lift the Label, Let's get back to the preposterous world of Denver's Buntport Theater Company. Preposterous for several reasons. The founders met in college decades ago, formed a theater troupe, and are still at it with their 50th show, which is an uproarious love letter to Richard III. Preposterous in some ways, too, because the pandemic decimated many arts organizations, yet Buntport managed to hang on. And Preposterous because on their stage, space helmets and ice skates live alongside the likes of Shakespeare and Kafka. I sat with the founders on the set of their latest show, Heart Richard. So Brian Colonna, Hannah Duggan, Eric Edborg, Aaron Rollman, and Samantha Schmitz. Uh, how was it, Brian? I think, are you the business mind? You're the one who emailed me that this was the 50th show. So I'm going to go with you on this one. Did you think that you'd survive the pandemic? Oh, gosh. I think like everyone else, we had no idea. And when you look back on it, you think, oh, how naive we were. We were just about to open a show on March 13th. And we were playing the game where we were like, oh, maybe we'll be able to open as everyone was not knowing what was in store for us. Mm. Then as time went on, and especially now looking back, and of course, it's not over, we're still dealing with it. It was just the wildest, strangest thing that we 
uh, you couldn't imagine it. And then for us as well, a group of people who literally have worked in the same room for 20 years. I mean, we have a collaborative process. We have meetings all of the time. I'm sure other people found this in their work environments. And then we weren't together. We were meeting on Zoom occasionally, but that was a real change to figure out how to run the company without being in the room together. Um, so it's a strange time. It's still a strange time. I think people feel strange coming out. They very much want to, but... Um, I was masked when I saw Hart Richard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Uh-huh. So was the rest of the audience. That yes. was the request. So y'all get FCFD money, Scientific mm-hmm. Cultural mm-hmm. Facilities District money. Did that help? Did you get grants, loans? Yeah, we were very... We're, very lucky. Our donor base was super generous during the pandemic, as mm. well as granting organizations. There were a few organizations who stepped up and knew that all of the organizations that they funded were not able to do anything. So they still gave money, which is mm. great. Um, we had sold most of the tickets to the show that we were supposed to open that that day that we closed down. And everyone just donated their mm. ticket price to us. Small so, business loans. Yes, the, the PPP forgiven. loans, yeah. stuff like that. Oh, there that. was a PPP, okay. Um, yeah. All of those things have helped us. And we kept doing as much programming as possible. Because that's Virtually. Like the, mm-hmm. We did virtual performances. We did performances in our parking lot. We created two brand new shows that were built just for the parking lot. You know, we're used to writing our own shows. We're used to having all sorts of constraints on our productions. And so... It was a little bit easier for us, I think, to adapt to, to adapt mm-hmm. to that situation. And so, yeah, we wrote a show that was like a drive-in show where people had speakers in their car and all of the sound came through there. Oh. And then later on, we did a show where everyone was seated out outdoors and um, we were in these ridiculous space outfits. And <laughs> you know, that we, was a, a, we still tried to have fun. A COVID-specific show, I mean, not just because it was outside, but the space helmet that we were wearing was actually made for people during COVID to get on airplanes. It is enormous. It has two fans. Completely impractical. And we saw them and they were being discounted because there were less people who were ever going to wear something like that. (laughs) And we were like, oh my gosh, these are great space helmets. We'll wear them to perform. The audience will feel safer. It will be outside, but we'll write a space show because of these objects. Amazing. So if you need to get in a space helmet, we have some, Ryan. Mm -hmm. Um, I would like to try one on. I certainly would like to get a photo of one of you in them. <laughs> Speaking of costume, in the new show, Heart Richard, Aaron Rollman, yeah. you wear these magnificent, shoes. talk about absurd, yeah. shoes. Oh, the shoes are so beautiful. Describe them. The sho- Oh my gosh. The shoes are, are based on real medieval shoes. And they're red with a golden sheen and the toes go, what, maybe six or seven inches past my toes? And curl curl up back. To a perfect little point. I mean, kind of like jestery shoes, I guess it would be the sort of thing that you can imagine in your head. Or elfin. Yeah, elfin shoes. And they were made by Annabelle Reeder, an amazing artisan who, together with her husband, Dan Hewling, runs uh, the Colorado Shoe School. The Colorado Shoe School. You can make your own shoes. They teach you one-on-one instructions. Um, Brian and I have both made sneakers there, and it is a magical experience. I cannot recommend it enough. (laughs) Your theater in Denver, where we're sitting, is sandwiched between a Greek food supplier. Mm-hmm. There's a fine arts moving company, I think, down the road. It's got this light industrial feel with some houses mixed in. 
What do you and don't you like about this spot, Hannah? Um, the beeping trucks. <laughs> you like you like those. I like I love that. <laughs> I often like to riff off of it, you know. Um, actually I love this neighborhood. In in a way it has changed in the past 20 years and in a way it hasn't changed at all. All of our neighbors, the people who work here, Father uh, Woody's next door uh, on the corner, we get to, you know, deal with a lot of unhoused people. And I think that it actually is good. It's a good thing, you know, and we, we, everyone in the neighborhood knows us, you know, even the troublemakers, they're like, that's the theater, you don't mess with the theater. You know, it's, it's nice. I like this neighborhood, besides the backing up of the trucks. Brian. I'm going to just piggyback and say there's something, having been in Denver for the last 20 years and experienced the population boom and how Denver has changed, it's a kind of industrial space that, like you've said, has remained unchanged in some ways. It won't stay that way for long. Things are expensive. And the reason we're here is because we could afford the space. Um, if we tried to do that again, we probably couldn't. But Do you own it? We do not. Mm-hmm. We, we rent it. We own one of the little houses across the street. Um, that we use for offices and mm. costume storage and prop storage. Are you going to be forced out? We, we hope not. Um, of course, things have changed with the business. The pandemic was not good on our landlord, who does the Greek wholesale. He had problems with supply chain, etc. We have talked to him and worked with him for 20 years, so he's pretty open to taking care of us. We've taken care of him. Mm. Um, so I feel solid in that way. But of course... Something like the pandemic changes the playing field for all of that. Okay, we've talked about a rabbit musical. Mm-hmm. We've talked about Kafka on Ice. In the current show, Heart Richard, you've rigged this system so that you always get a perfect shot with the basketball. What is one thing you have not achieved on this stage that you want to achieve? Oh my gosh. An underwater show. I've always wanted to do some kind of big water on tank or it looks like you're underwater, you know, not necessarily like you're hanging fish from the ceiling and going in slow motion, but actually something immersive, you might <laughs> oh, say. Oh, immersive theater. <laughs> which is my, uh, which I think I is think the only can... true definition of immersive theater is if it's underwater. That is my personal but does the audience have to be underwater to call <laughs> no, it immersive? No, no, no. <laughs> please, please. I mean, it would be better if they were, but... Aaron? I don't know. Like, we love to problem solve and we love to come up with, like, the goofiest ways to simulate something Mm -hmm. um, fantastical and large and something that would be out of our budget. So to me, I feel like it's all still available to us. Like, Mm -hmm. it's all conquerable. We just have to think of the right way to do it. The world is your oyster still. The world is our oyster. Brian? I'm going to joke and say that We've remounted some of our past work recently, and for example, my back went out during the puppeting of Tommy Lee Jones. So sometimes I think. I, know, well, hold on. <laughs> can we Context can there. we diagram that sentence? Sure. My back went out during the puppeting of Tommy Lee Jones. Yeah, I I don't think it needs any explanation. Ryan. <laughs> We have a show called Tommy Lee Jones Goes to the Opera Alone, and it's a puppet version of Tommy Lee Jones, and he talks about his favorite opera, Turandot, which is, was unfinished by Puccini, and he, with the waitress, sort of imagines what the ending of Turandot should be. I realize that my pronunciation might make some opera right, Turandot. I, I, upset, I, I, but... We're going to get letters, it's fine, I'll um, So 
there's three of us puppeting Tommy Lee. Eric is voicing him, and Hannah plays the the waitress. But I'm older than I was when we wrote it, and I was like, uh-huh, starting to hurt, and then it was out. So sometimes I dream, and I say to these people, let's just make a show where two people are sitting in comfy chairs <laughs> talking to each other. Um, no one has to hang from the ceiling. No one has to be puppeted. It'll just be recliners and a nice cup of tea and some chat. I look forward to your production of No Exit, then. Okay. <laughs> Hannah. Dinner with Andre. I don't know. Like, let's just do Death of a Salesman or something. Let's just do a show that's already been written, hyper-realistic. <laughs> wow. Let's just do that. That would surprise ourselves the yes, most. Yes, if we did that, we would never. But would it be fun if we did? You're just going to break tradition. Yeah. All right. Because oh, I don't think we would do it very well, but I think, <laughs> <laughs> but it might be entertaining watching us struggle through Death of a Salesman. Watching us try to do mm-hmm. a, an actual series. It, it would feel better to know you had a show before you opened it that was popular and people liked. Yes. The problem with writing your own and performing them and making it all is on opening night, you're like, this might be the worst thing that's ever happened. If people don't like the writing, it's our fault. If they don't like the direction, it's our fault. If they don't like the acting, it's our fault. So feeling like you had a sure thing yeah. would be a, a nice a, opening. At least it won a Pulitzer. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> okay, Sam, what do you want to achieve on this stage? I, um, I really don't know. In our early days, we did a lot of transformational magic of the sets and stuff like the chalkboards transforming into different things and such. And so in some of the reviews about Quixote specifically, they said that it's as magical as the um, helicopter landing on stage or the, Oh, in Miss Saigon, in Miss Saigon or the um, chandelier coming down through the audience in Phantom of the Opera. And I've kind of always wanted to land a helicopter on stage just because that, <laughs> that there seems... are very tiny remote control ones that are available to us for that purpose. <laughs> I'd like to just do a little workshopping and blend the helicopter idea with the underwater idea mm-hmm. with the people sitting in recliners idea <laughs> and death of a salesman. And we'll just say we'll just say the words from Death of a Salesman. We'll just shove it all in there. Ryan, you just got to write in credit. First show. <laughs> you just write You're welcome. <laughs> I'll make my own shoes for it. (laughs) Thank you so much for talking to us. Thank Thank you you for talking to us. Yeah, super great. Samantha Schmitz, Aaron Rollman, Eric Edborg, Hannah Duggan, and Brian Colonna co-founded Denver's Buntport Theater. Their 50th original show, Heart Richard, closes this weekend. And that's our show for today, with thanks to the Colorado Matters Ensemble. I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News and KRCC. KRCC.